Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. Subscribe to the podcast on your feed so that you never miss an episode. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And I'm Ian Dunt. I'm an economist with the Iron Newspaper and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. This week, we're returning to pop culture for the first time since season two with an episode on the politics of zombies. If we'd been faster, we would have timed this for a Halloween release. Um, yeah, so that would have actually been very sensible. We're not fast enough. <laughs> we would be killed by zombies. <laughs> this is a special edition of Origin Story because this is the first time that we will be sending out the making of podcast, which will come on immediately after this is played for Patreon supporters, going into the books that we've read, the films that we've watched, and what we've listened to as well. And this week, because it's zombies, that comes with our bona fide zombie movie watch list. All you need to do to listen to it is to sign up to be a patron now, and it'll be right there at the end of the podcast. We'll see you there. Guys, ahead of what we're about to say, uh, here's a quick spoiler warning. We're basically going to talk about, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of films and overwhelmingly we're going to do so just doing like a quick setup of what happens in them. But in two cases, we're going to describe everything that happens in the film, or at least we're going to talk about the ending. Those are The Night of the Living Dead from 1968 and 28 Weeks Later from 2007. So, you know, here's your half century spoiler warning for the first one. If you haven't seen those films and you care about this, go watch them now before you start listening or, you know, just get over it and go back to them later. Ian, I've actually written about this in my next book, but this was your suggestion. I got very excited and had never actually thought about it as a topic. Why? I should notice, by the way, twice with you, I've had the same experience where I make a suggestion and you agree very quickly. Yeah. And I notice that any time that happens, it's because you found a way of doing less work. Yeah. One of them was to read a shorter Iron Rand book yeah. and the other one was doing this episode. Absolutely. So it is now noted. Mm-hmm. I've, I've fucking, I'm on to you, <laughs> Linsky. So, I mean, what I find incredible about zombies is it, it's like you can't keep the politics away from them. Like, no matter how many zombie things you watch or play or read, even when they're not particularly, you know, ostentatiously political, it's almost impossible to not just sort of have these political metaphors just start, like, hitting the inside of your head. I think it's it's borderline impossible to make a non-political zombie story, although some have tried. Well, I think the classic example for me was the Zack Snyder remake of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, where Zack Snyder is not like a big ideas guy, (laughs) and yet... They're just in there. You know what I mean? You can't root them out. And it's like, I mean, you know, the story of them, that we'll find that all the way through, that they start as a, an extremely political, cultural item. A really savage and, and quite upsetting one, actually. And they move, they just move between cultures, between countries, between mediums, uh, between generations. And they shed bits and they gain bits, but ultimately it feels like that that original political sense in them, it's not consistent by any stretch of the imagination, but you just can't scrub it out. You just can't get rid of the fundamentally political nature of, of, of this idea. Well, just going through uh, just some of the more recent famous ones, you know, I noticed they represented war, invasion, terrorism, climate change, <laughs> capitalism, disease, <laughs> and like death itself, right? Some of them are really bleak. Some of them are very funny. And if you compare that to like, I don't know, vampires or werewolves or whatever, it's like they're quite simple. Mm. People kind of know what a vampire represents. And zombies are almost this blank slate. At least the modern version mm. of the zombie, and we will talk about the different like meanings of the word. And people don't really seem to get tired of them. Because I was reading quite a few pieces from around like the late noughties when there'd just been this unbelievable rash of works about zombies. And there's definitely a feeling of like, well, this can't last. <laughs> but you know, The Last of Us is a big hit. And I know they say that it's not zombies, but it's it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um and you know, and people aren't like you know, rolling their eyes and going, oh zombies again they Mm -hmm. just seem to be sort of just entrenched in the culture it's quite hard to think of many sort of tropes that are so widespread around the world 
Like they're a fully globalized cultural mm. item, right? Like you will find zombie films in almost every country with the cinema industry, on the TV, in the literature. They've been deeply imbued into our language. Like you would struggle to go through a week where you won't hear something described as zombie, a zombie economy, a zombie policy, a zombie government, a zombie party, yep. you know, on and on. It, it's just sort of um, in a way that, you know, vampires, werewolves, none of them attain. They always feel too specific and small. It has become this absolutely huge global phenomenon. And I suspect that's because of the size of the metaphorical bucket, mm. as you've just sort of shown. This idea of between life and death is so open that mm. you can just start dumping any oh, number yeah. of ideas in there. They can be quite locally specific as well as very universal. Well, I've read kind of left-wing essays about zombies and I've read Christian essays about zombies and they're coming <laughs> to different conclusions <laughs> and neither of them are wrong. Uh, so in this case, the OED actually gives us a roadmap for the story we're going to tell, which I think is, is really unusual because it has like multiple definitions. I'm not even listing oh, wow. all of them. Huh. Is this our longest uh, definition from them? Uh, oh, without a doubt. Oh, wow. Okay, so the basic definition is the ghost or spirit of a dead person, semicolon, a reanimated corpse or being, li being like to or resembling one. So that's trying to get everything into one definition. Mm. First definition, in parts of the Caribbean, especially Haiti and the southern United States, the ghost or spirit of a dead person, especially a malevolent one, now rare. First citation from a French magazine in 1788. Uh, well, I think it was zombie without uh, an E. Second meaning, especially in parts of the Caribbean, especially Haiti and the southern United States, a soulless corpse said to have been revived by witchcraft. First citation, a writer we were talking about in detail, William Seabrook, 1929. Uh, three, in horror films, books, etc., a reanimated corpse typically portrayed as a creature capable of movement but not rational thought with an insatiable hunger for human flesh or brains. Now the most <laughs> common sense. <laughs> You I really enjoyed saying the word brains, brains. at the end of that I just presence. love the way that it's got it because everything's very straight with the OED. And it's just, 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 just. Um, first citation, monthly film bulletin, 1970, a review of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. The countryside is overrun with these murderous zombies. Hmm. Film we're also oh, going to talk about a lot. Four, a dull, apathetic, unresponsive or unthinkingly acquiescent person also is a general term of disparagement. Um, racism clacks in here, I'm afraid. First citation is H. L. Mencken from 1936, writing about movies. Any performer, not a Caucasian, is a zombie. Mm. Presumably talking about one particular movie. Right, right, right. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, Ian, most people think of the third one, although, as you said, we see a lot of the fourth two in this figurative mm -hmm. sense, you know, zombie economics or whatever. Now, the modern horror zombie, if we were starting with that, we would start with Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Yeah. Uh, but we are going to talk first about the earlier forms of zombie law in those first two definitions rooted in Haiti. Uh, so, Ian, where does that zombie begin? Um, around 1887, but it had probably been around for much, much longer than that. The term itself is the product, really, of the sort of transport of populations between Africa, Europe, and the plantations of the Caribbean and the American South of the slave trade essentially. Mm. Um, and it comes from a belief system that's a product of the slave trade, which is voodoo. So we've got, in 1887, we've got Lafcadio Hearn using the word. So we've got these sort of possible linguistic candidates for its origin. Um, and, and forgive my pronunciation here, as ever. But Nzumbi, meaning corpse in Mitsogo language of Gabon. Nzambi, meaning spirit of a dead person in the Congo language of the Congo. So in those sort of communities, those cultures, especially during the slave period, the, the concept was around. So Hearn is this, he's a bohemian writer and journalist. He's Irish-Greek uh, parentage, um, educated in England and France, goes to the US, and eventually settles down in Japan where he fully assimilates. It's quite an interesting guy. He's, he, he does an awful lot of bringing foreign words into English. So for instance, the word tsunami is used in English because of him. Wow. And he's, he's sort of this kind of cultural antiquarian, like he likes going to places of sort of witchcraft and these old ways that are sort of slowly being eradicated by the Enlightenment, essentially. Um, and he spends a couple of years in Martinique in 1887, and he writes this travel sketches where he says, quote, 
Among the people of color, extraordinary, by the way, that I don't even need to do a, a racist klaxon no. because the language actually stands up, I think, by accident. Um, among the people of color, there are many who believe that even at noon, the zombies will show themselves to solitary loiterers. And he starts asking um, people around, what does this actually mean, zombie? Is it like someone who comes back? And they're like, no, not quite that. Is it a ghost? No, not quite that. So even at this very early stage, he kind of can't find the definition. It keeps on slipping away from him. In the same, And that's something that we'll see in the story all the way through, that it's really hard to pin down a definition of zombie. They always break apart the kind of metaphorical and the definitional boundaries that you impose on them. So in the end, he sort of gives up. He writes this, zombie. The word, again, with just the eye. Zombie, the word is perhaps full of mystery, even for those who made it. The explanations of those who utter it most often are never quite lucid. It seems to convey ideas darkly impossible to define, fancies belonging to the mind of another race and another era, unspeakably old. What confused me is in that first OED definition, it says the ghost or spirit of a dead person. So it's a, it's like a soul without a body. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is a body without a soul. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's actually a, a, a significantly different thing. When we talk about the Haitian zombie, I always understood it as the second meaning. But mm -hmm. there's this prior meaning, which seems almost like the opposite. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's so confusing. He spends a lot of time sort of talking to one woman in particular, and he says, is it the spectre of a dead person? Is it one who comes back? She's like, no, no, it isn't. They're the ones that when you go by the cemetery, they're the dead folks who bar your way so that you have to take another route. It's all in this kind of strangely practical language. The next time it really comes up is William Seabrook, who yeah. is typically credited with bringing the word. In fact, he credits himself. He says, I didn't invent the word nor the concept of zombies, but I brought the word and concept to America from Haiti and gave it in print to the American public for the first time. He's a very unusual, strange man, a sort of a cultist and a bohemian, sort of going around New York, Paris, London. He's friends because, of course, he is with Alistair Crowley. Um, he's part of a a sort of, I guess you can call it a movement, which you have to put a racist klaxon on this one called negrophilia, which is this sort of quite racist, it acts like it's a celebration of black mm. lives and black culture, but is in fact in itself completely racist. And it comes really from that horror of the First World War, of the hypocrisy of white bourgeois culture leading to the trenches, saying, well, isn't there something in this primitive jungle, you know, culture, this inner man that we can find ourselves in? And that's mostly the narrative that he employs as he, as he goes traveling. He's in Haiti in 1929, and that's when he writes The Magic Island. Um, Haiti plays a big role in this. So Haiti is the only state to be built after a successful slave rebellion. And that took place in 1804. And after that period, it is demonized and lambasted by typically colonial powers, you know, Britain, the US, France, for centuries as a kind of affront to civilized values. Every time you see anything, it's about Haiti. It's always about the chaos, you know, the savagery, the brutality, the primitivity of, of the place. And by the way, that goes up to now. Like, I mean, you know, you take in 2010, the Daily Mail had a headline following the earthquake that took place there. Their headline for the earthquake was rape, murder and voodoo on the island of the damned. Fucking hell. I know, I know. But honestly, that has always been the approach to that country. And, and the origin of that is in the fact that it was, it was built after a successful slave rebellion. In 1915, the US intervenes. This is its kind of like explicitly imperialist phase before it gets wrapped up by the good neighbor policy in the 30s. They intervene. They dissolve the legislature. Basically, at gunpoint, they force a new constitution there that for the first time since the revolution allows for the foreign ownership of land. Um, and there's this incredible fear that this is going to be the return of slavery, really, that you will see sort of indentured workers just having to go back to the way that things had been 100 years before. And with the American approach also comes this cultural imperialism, Catholics and Protestants targeting you know, domestic religious practices as, as primitive and dangerous. And that's the culture that basically William Seabrook goes into. I mean, he's there and he can only be there because of the American presence in a chapter called Dead Men Working in Cane Fields. And this is the proper origin, yeah. really, of what we know of as zombies. He calls uh, zombies, quote, a baffling category on the ragged edge of things which are beyond superstition or reason. He's actually quite a good writer. That's good. I mean, yeah, he's, he's a bastard, actually, in many ways, but he's a good writer. He says, the zombie is a soulless human corpse, still dead, 
but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with mechanical semblance of life. It is a dead body which is made to walk and act and move as if it were alive. Now, in this case, he says it's always being used by a voodoo master, basically for labor, sometimes for criminal activities, but they raise it up and then basically send it out to labor. So the villain in this early version of the zombie is not the zombie, it's the person controlling the zombie. The zombie's the victim. Exactly. It's the voodoo master. Although, interestingly, there's a secondary villain in the background because he's taken uh, to go see an example of these zombies at night. And he finds them among workers at an American company Mm. called the Haitian American Sugar Company or Hasco. And that's when he first sees his images. He He sees three of them. He says, my first impression of the three supposed zombies who continued dumbly at work was that there was something about them unnatural and strange. They were plodding like brutes, like automatons. The eyes were the worst. It was not my imagination. They were in truth like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. The whole face, for that matter, was bad enough. It was vacant, as if there was nothing behind it. So it's the voodoo master, yes, who has absolutely Mm. got these workers and is is getting the wages from the company and not giving it to them, but also American capitalism and American imperialism in the background. But then Seabrook comes to a conclusion, doesn't he, about what they are. Yes. He goes, the zombies were nothing but poor, ordinary, demented human beings, idiots forced to toil in the fields. I mean, this is language that... We would not use, <laughs> not use now. But I mean, he kind of sees like, oh, okay, right. This isn't, this isn't supernatural. And then he sort of can't help himself. And a little bit later, he tries to make it a bit yeah. more, you know, he, he, can't, he kind of can't help himself. But his whole image that he tries to portray to people is, I am, you know, the white rationalist, able to get into the mind of black cultures and show them to the audiences back home. So he has to have that kind of rationalist explanation. But then he can't help but also do, but, oh, spooky stories. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's something strange in the nighttime. I think his use of the word automaton is really interesting because at this very same time, You've got, during the 1920s, the skyrocketing popularity of uh, the word robot. Oh, interesting. After Carol Chebeck's play, R.U.R. And that is seen by particularly people on the left as uh, a sort of an allegory for the dehumanizing oppression of workers and turning them into slaves and the like machines. And you see the word zombie and the word robot and the more old-fashioned word automaton being used interchangeably all to describe the you know the worker who seems to have been forced to lose something of themselves what's interesting is when he's talking about these guys i mean what is he talking about like look at the the sort of state he's describing that he would describe as sort of imbecilic or whatever it's basically like exhaustion from forced labor the shuffling Mm -hmm. is the, the thing that you would see in sort of enslaved gangs of trying to conserve energy, desperately trying to conserve energy, because that's the only way that you're likely to survive. That image of the zombie that he puts in that book is essentially an image of a slave. Mm. That is what it is. And by that, you get the sense of probably what the usage was in Haiti at the time, which is, I mean, in, in the words of Jennifer Fay, the sort of cultural scholar, as slavery's uncanny return. What's funny is... From here, the zombie spreads out to the US, and we'll talk about that. But no matter how much changes in meaning, no matter what, how adapted it is to a different medium, that fundamental reality of it, of it's the image of a slave, is always there in the shuffle and in the social death of the creature. There was also a fear in Haiti of people of taking it seriously. And one of the things that does seem to, I can't tell actually how much this happened and how much was simply like a rumour, like a moral panic, Mm. was that there was almost an idea where you can't raise the dead, but what you can do is drug someone into a death-like coma. Then they get buried, essentially buried alive. Then they get risen again. And so in the Haitian penal code, there was a there was a specific law prohibiting drugging people into a death-like state. Right. Yeah. So Seabrook cites that penal code, yeah. and it again gets transmitted to to the U.S., where it's taken to give this sort of sense of realism and truth about what's going on, rather than this is not just Dracula. This is something that's actually mm. happening somewhere. It mostly transmits in the early days. So this is like the late, very, very late 20s and the very, very early 30s through 
two mediums. The first one is radio, which we just don't even think about now, radio drama. But radio drama was absolutely huge in that period and really underanalyzed in terms of its effect. And the other is uh, pulp, pulp magazines, which, again, we don't really talk about or think about. Um, but we're absolutely, I mean, absolutely huge at the time. I mean, we're, we're talking about 30 million Americans reading them in the 1930s. And from there, these are magazines like Terror Tales, Horror Stories, The Unknown. That's where we get the first cluster, the first sort of transmission of the zombie idea. One of them, the story Salt is Not for Slaves, was written by a man called Garnet Wilson in 1931 under the pseudonym G.W. Hutter. And he is the scriptwriter for White Zombie, a film in 1932 that is basically the introduction of the zombie to American cinemas. And deliberately based on Seabrook. Exactly. It, yeah, deliberately based very heavily on Seabrook. So I've never seen White Zombie. What I have seen when I went through a little phase of watching uh, Jacques Tourneur movies a few years ago is I Walked with a Zombie, which is much more highbrow and actually yes. takes quite, um, quite a few ideas from Jane Eyre and the connection <laughs> to the Caribbean in that. So that's from 1943. Mm. It's a very beautiful film. I mean, it's, it's spectacularly shot and very elegant. And it has a sort of similar kind of plot. A nurse from Canada goes over um, to a sort of unnamed Caribbean island where a woman has been zombified. She's the wife of a white plantation owner. Um, what I found extraordinary is, A, that film is very explicit about the slavery origin of what's going on. So at one point... The plantation owner says to the nurse, they're both white, he says, that's where our people come from, from the misery and pain of slavery. For generations, they found life a burden. That's why they still weep when a child is born and make merry at a burial. I've told you, Miss Connell, this is a sad place. And there is this slave ship hmm. that sits in the courtyard throughout with this sort of master that the camera kind of can't stop looking at. And it's right there at the end, as if to say, well, look, this is all the result of slavery. So because of these movies, the word is sort of abroad, you mm. know. Um, mm. J.B. Priestley in his 1946 novel Bright Day has a character say this about the English upper classes. They've spent their lives starving their imagination, just starving it to death. And now they're <laughs> zombies. And, and that's, oh, wow. Yeah, and that's the white upper classes. So, so it, it's become a more generic, just you're like, you're mindless. Sartre in his 1961 preface to Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth um, says, Les zombies, c'est vous. Which mm -hmm. is basically going. It's not. It's not just the colonised now. It's the colonisers as well. Oh wow! So in this interim period before Night of the Living Dead in 1968, there are lots of ingredients of zombie movies, but not attached to zombies. Uh, and it all depends what you think is most interesting about zombie movies. You know, that Thomas Jones, the London Review of Books, he wrote in many respects, Zulu qualifies as a zombie film, as do a fair number of cowboy and Indian movies. Because it's about this, again, this sort of like racialized fear of this mm. sort of mass coming towards you. I think that during the 50s and early 60s, there were quite a few like proto-zombie movies which have elements of this. So uh, John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids concentrates basically on survival and how different people react to this sudden world-changing right. event. Right. That becomes part of the zombie tale. Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Thing from Another World, which was remade by John Carpenter as The Thing, are about the paranoia of seeing your friends and neighbours turn into like hostile creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, and Alfred Hitchcock's The Bird shows us this sort of community under siege from this incomprehensible inhuman mass. And you're like, well, why are they doing this? Why do, mm. why do they want to kill us? Now, none of these are strictly zombie stories. We would have been conscious of that. But these are all things that get pulled together by George Romero. And the biggest influence and a really explicit one is I Am Legend, a 1954 novel by Richard Matheson. Just a fascinating character. He wrote the story that, that Spadema Swerberg's Jewel was based on. He wrote episodes of The Twilight Zone. Quite an important writer and quite an eccentric one. And this is the story of Richard Neville, the last man on earth after an apocalyptic plague has um, either killed everyone or turned them into vampires. Mm -hmm. And Neville discovers that this is a pandemic of vampirism caused by a form of bacteria, which he discovers, mm -hmm. which puts infection at the heart of things, even though that doesn't really come back as the most important component of zombie stories for quite a while. Yeah, but, but yeah. He, you know, he's on it there. And in fact, if you look at the way that bacteria and viruses were being written about, 
particularly viruses, they sound like zombies. Yes. New York Times described a virus, because this was still like quite early days for research into to viruses, as entities neither living nor dead that belong to the twilight zone between the living <laughs> and the non-living. <laughs> Feels very on point. Now, in I Am Legend, these aren't like your... Dracula-style, sleek, aristocratic vampires that's ugly and stupid. And one of them just, like, hangs around outside Neville's house shouting, Neville! <laughs> They're like, it's not hard to outwit them, it's just there's so many of them. And in the first movie version, uh, 1964's The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, they're still called vampires, but they look like zombies. Mm-hmm. And this book was also adopted as the Omega Man with Charlton Heston, but that's not... They're not treated as zombies in that one. They're too they're too clever in that one. And so what's interesting there is that Matheson, without realizing it, makes zombies an offshoot of post-apocalyptic sci-fi and associates them with the end of the world, which is really important to mm, mm. the sort of future of zombies. So Romero was absolutely transparently trying to rewrite I Am Legend. Right. There's, he says this a few times. His idea was you start at the beginning rather than the aftermath. I Am Legend is all about like what happens when everybody else has been turned into a vampire slash zombie. Yeah. And he's like, well, what if you start normally in a normal day? He said, I ripped off the siege and the central idea, which I thought was so powerful that this particular plague involved the entire planet. He was only 27. He'd, he'd only really been working on adverts in Pittsburgh. He did some work with Mr. Rogers, the beloved... Oh, wow. Children's mm. uh, entertainer. And this was his first well, movie. That's quite a journey he went on. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> Apparently he wanted to cast, this is a podcast where they said that he was trying to cast an actress that he knew from Mr. Rogers' show. And Mr. Rogers was like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Ian, we both saw this for the first time this year. Um, what did you make of it? I loved, I should say that I was genuinely really unsettled and quite scared, not just by this film, but also by White Zombie and I Walked With a Zombie. I find those early representations of zombies, you can instantly see why it's a really quite disturbing idea. You know, I've been trying to avoid spoilers for this one and just do the setup. But with this film, it's quite hard. And I think maybe we, we if you don't want to be spoiled for a film that came out in 1968, maybe just skip the next 30 seconds. Mm. Um, but there's a brother and sister, and they go to their one of their parents' graves. They're attacked by a zombie. They uh, The sister manages to sort of find a house that has a collection of people in it, one of whom is a black man who really takes charge of the situation. The others are white, and they enter into a, a sort of angry debate about where is the best place to establish your, yeah. your safest location. Is it in the basement or in the main room? And at the end of it, at the end of the film, the black character, who is the only person that's managed to survive, is shot in the head by a sort of redneck police militia. They think he is a zombie. They do. Like they that's do. why they do. They, they do. do. Yeah. And what's interesting there is that character Ben, played by Dwayne Jones, was not written um, with a particular racial identity. Um, Dwayne Jones was just like that seemed like the best guy for the role. So Romero really downplayed what mm. I think to the viewer. Seems like an incredibly obvious commentary on uh, racism. Uh, Colson Whitehead, who will come to you later, who wrote his own zombie novel, said about Night of the Living Dead, black guy on the run from hordes of insane white people who want to tear him limb from limb. What's more American than that? <laughs> but, but Romero's like, oh, that was just who I happened to cast. And, and it, it's weird because there's so much politics in there, but whenever he gets asked about it, he's sort of going... Oh, I really—I wasn't thinking about that. Regardless of whether he intended it or not, that viewing of it becomes this really definitive thing in the sort of evolution of zombies. So Roger Lockhurst, who, who wrote a very good book uh, on the sort of cultural history of zombies, said this. For every viewer since, the last scenes of night rendered explicit the allegorical potential of the zombie trope for commentary hmm. on the contemporary world. And so it sort of feels like it... What, you know, this this is the zombie emerging for the first time in its modern form. You lose all of the voodoo trappings, all of the sort of Haitian origins of the thing. You introduce the central idea of the zombie in the modern period, which is also massification. You know, that before the zombie was this sort of quite solitary figure or maybe in a small gang. But the real threat, as you were saying for I Am Legend, is just that there's just so many of them that you're in an awful spot of bother. Well, there's a few radical things that, that Romero introduces. Like one is the idea most horror movies are localized. So if you, you know, if you get out of the scary house, you're yeah. okay. Yeah. Whereas here, 
it's global. And Romero obviously couldn't afford to show that. It's very low budget and an extraordinarily profitable film because <laughs> it's just so cheap. And he uses TV broadcasts to explain that it's happening all over the country and probably the world. So that's a big change from horror tradition. Also, you can be going about your business in daylight and suddenly the zombies are after you. Mm. You don't have to go into the scary place like an idiot. And Romero saw them as a sort of blue-collar working-class monster that might show up in anybody's backyard. <laughs> and the other thing is it's incredibly bleak. So like you said, everybody dies. Everyone behaves pretty badly. They can't sort of save themselves like from themselves in a, in a way. Yeah. And we talked about the, the, the way the idea of the generation gap became big in the 60s, in the Boomers episode. And there's a scene here where a young girl kills and eats her parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like a very, very dark joke yes. about yeah. the generation gap. And the other really important thing to say about it is that he didn't know they were zombies. Mm -hmm. In the movie, they are called flesh-eating ghouls. <laughs> And the first wave of people that watched the movie also didn't know they were zombies. So that OED reference is from 1970 when the movie was re-released because it sort of didn't do very well first time and they wanted to realize there was a bigger audience out there. And zombies started appearing in reviews. And Romero said, people called them zombies. I said, wow, maybe they are. To me, they were dead neighbors. <laughs> And he's, that, he's very principled in dispelling oh yeah. any positive assessment you would have of what he's He also done. told Richard Matheson to his face that he had ripped off I Am Legends. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to hear the, um, the variety review of, like, mm. is this, until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as the outer limit definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of the Pittsburgh-based makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who book the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of the filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. Now, if that's not a good night no. for movies, I don't know what is. And I think why people like Variety react so badly, not just obviously to, to <laughs> small girl eating her parents. Um, <laughs> it's just the unbelievable pessimism, you know, arguably nihilism. Yes, absolutely. Like nothing works. People fail. It's like they're up against these monsters and, but they are kind of monsters in themselves. And that Romero carries throughout his entire career because he doesn't capitalize on it for quite for about a decade. So you've got all these other zombies start to appear, especially in Italy, and they're very much called zombie this, you know, zombie that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't come back to it until 1978 and Dawn of the Dead, which is kind of a sequel, kind of another angle on it. Obviously, you can't have any of the same characters because they're all dead. Right. And it's very, very much a 70s movie. So it's not a, a clear chronological sequel. Did you dig this one as much as the first one? I mean, I had a fucking amazing time. <laughs> I just had a lot of fun. I think just incidentally, I think you are spot on in that assessment. He, his view and, and his, his sort of political view gets imbued, I think, in the genre in a way that you can see even now with like The Walking Dead or, mm. or whatever, is um, fundamentally he has a progressive political view and simultaneously a deeply pessimistic sense of humanity and what humans are capable of. In the end, his real thing is like, by the time he gets to the end of this trilogy, he's sort of in the position of thinking like humans are worse than the zombies. Well, it's, a, it's, right? it's, it's, it's progressive beliefs on the surface and what I suppose you would call a conservative pessimism underneath. Yeah, exactly. I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, so it is a much uh, more colorful film, Dawn of the Dead, it's a much more um, funny film. I mean, by this point, it's sort of half comedy already, or at least a third. Um, and at this point, he has clearly read a lot of articles about how political his first film was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. makes it much more explicit. So, you know, in opening scenes, you have sort of cops going through sort of tenement buildings full of um, black and Latino people and sort of using racial slurs. And you're like, okay, so it's surface now. We're not, you know, none, none of this was subtext, even though apparently you weren't even aware of the subtext yeah. in the first film. Yeah, because that sort of uses, that's really dark because it's using, they're basically using it as an excuse to sort of clean up the ghetto. Yeah. You know, massacring people. 
Um, and then more famously, we it sort of switches to another siege, this time in a shopping mall, where you get more of a parody of consumerism. Pretty on the nose at times, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's funny, but yeah. you know, it is. Um, and the Times Literary Supplement uh, said, had a very good line on that. It says, it turns over the stone and lets the bugs of the 1970s crawl out. And there is so much like 70s malaise in there. Mm. I, I read the novelization, which Romero co-wrote, because a lot of time you get far more ideas that can be fitted into the movie in the novelization. Uh, and basically the government in this is, is as corrupt as Nixon's and as economically fucked as Carter's. <laughs> And a lot of people think that the official warnings about the zombies are just an election ploy. Mm. So you have these like zombie deniers and just, oh, they're just trying to scare us. They're just, the election's coming up, mm -hmm. which I thought was like very prescient. You almost get kind of like conspiracy theorists yeah. who are all wrong, obviously. And then you've got the mad doctor <laughs> on the TV. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. part of it's in the TV station. And... What I find amazing about this character is that he's horrifying. He's relentless. He's like, these are not your friends and neighbors anymore. These are monsters and they must be destroyed. And if only we'd done this in the first place, then we wouldn't be in this situation. You have to be ruthless. And he's, he's horrifying. He's genocidal. Yeah. And yet he is right. Yes. You know, there's something so morally disturbing in zombie movies that mercy is almost always a mistake and probably a fatal mistake and being absolutely genocidally ruthless is the right thing to do yeah that's the really disturbing undercurrent to this genre from romero onwards mm -hmm. you know one of the first things they see on the tv in the first film in the night is someone saying no, i don't care if you're if your family member just died you have to just burn the body you know right now it's like don't worry about funerals it's, it's basically to say the gentleness and you know sentiment in you, the kindness, all of that must die. The the chief victim is our sense of kindness, and those who are willing to, you know, cut their father's head off to you hmm. know sacrifice their children here, they are always, pretty much always, the ones that turn out to be correct. Well, there's some good Christian writing about zombies, and one writer, Kim Paffenroth, says a human corpse is considered simultaneously both gruesome and sacred by any normal human being. It cannot be treated just like a piece of trash, but also it should not be kept around. So he says what happens, it violates these basic taboos um, about the treatment of dead bodies. And you're in a situation where basically either you kill and destroy your loved one mm. or your loved one will kill and infect you. Yes. There is, a, there is no morally pure way to respond. <laughs> and that, I think, is why, you know, it, politically it moves into the area of, um, of war crimes, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And in fact, wars constantly have a shadow over zombies. We'll see the way that I think that the Iraq war casts a shadow over sort of later British zombie cinema. But certainly in the 1968, you know, when, when night comes out, you can feel the shadow of the Vietnamese war. There, and you can feel it very much in the use of helicopters in dawn in the 70s as well. The last helicopter off the roof. The last helicopter off the roof. And even and even in the concept of massification itself of, of all these zombies, right? I mean, you know, from Korea to Vietnam, you see that military strategy. I mean, originally sort of developed um, by Mao Zedong, which is the human wave. Mm. You know, how do you conquer an army that is professional and that has much more money and much more weaponry where you just throw bodies at it, essentially. And that in the American psyche becomes, you know, we're behind the fortifications, an endless wave comes towards us. And the zombie really sort of feels like it's a kind of physical representation of that fear. Did you watch Save the Dead from 1985? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, because in that one, right, the fortress, the fragile fortress. We should say this is the third Romero yeah, zombie film. Is, uh, is a military base. And the military are pretty appalling. I mean, so are some of the scientists. Yes. Yeah. It turns out Romero's view of the world is in a debate between scientists and the military, they're both bastards. But yeah. <laughs> and, and that is, he could describe as a tragedy about how a lack of human communication causes chaos and collapse, even in this small little pie slice of society, which is sort of what he's been saying all along. Right. And continues to say, it's not just that movie. Yeah. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. People cannot come together against a common threat, which interestingly is something that Game of Thrones picks up on with the White Walkers. Yeah, Their that's version right. of zombies right. oh, is yeah. that people will yeah. not unite 
against the common threat. They cannot get over their own sort of petty internecine feuds. Origin Story only exists thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. So thank you so much this episode to Stuart O'Brien, Rachel Ridley, John Free, Kat Doikers, and Chris Coulter. To find out how you can get a shout-out on the show, plus loads of benefits and merchandise, click on the link in the show notes. Just before we leave Romero, um, I mean, we should point out the Day of the Dead actually flopped while the funny version, Return of the Living Dead, was a hit. And this is the era of the Michael Jackson's thriller video. And again, this is a zombie video. This is the most successful music video of all time. So everything was kind of, the zombie was getting sillier. And Day of the Dead was like too, probably other reasons why it didn't do very well, but it was sort of too dark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people had noticed the comedy in Dawn of the Dead and gone, let's mainly do that. Yes. Yeah. now, he, Romero died in 2017 after making quite a few more of the Dead series, lesser uh, achievements. And he said, I have my own attitudes about what these creatures are. They could be any worldwide disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane or whatever. It's just something that completely upsets the status quo. My stories are really about the humans who just carry on with their own foibles and their own interests and their own concerns, despite being faced with this extraordinary phenomenon. They're still just worried about themselves and their own petty worries. If there's any sort of a message that runs through all my films, it's that. People aren't able to stand up and face the reality. They'd rather keep on keeping on. Which is like an amazing statement. You could... Slap mm. that on our climate denial episode. Yeah. You yeah. know? That to him, that's what he was most interested in. But of course, when you create works that are so rich like this and so influential, other people are going to take other things and they're going to try and make different points. Yeah. But it's interesting to know that that's what that's what he thought he was saying, which is why each through each of the three films has a sort of fortress which collapses. Yeah, which which becomes the standard. Um, format for almost all zombie films. You know, in the first one, it's it's a house, the zombies invade, then it's a mall. You know, you fast forward something like 28 weeks later and it's the whole of the Isle of Dogs in London. But you always get basically, almost always get the last redoubt, fortified, overrun. And that is the typical narrative structure. And 28 Days Later starts with, um, he's in a hospital, which should be a safe place. The first place he encounters a zombie is in a church. Mm-hmm. Later on, there's a country house protected by the military. That should be safe. It's not. Mm. Like, nowhere is safe is perhaps like the main message yeah. of all zombie yeah. stories. Just a little, little side note, because we're going to get, we talk about 28 Days Later, and, and that really sort of starts the revival in movies. Um, but the word zombie, in that way that J.B. Priestley and Sartre were using it, is still quite potent. So Felicuti's song Zombie from 1977, of course, a West African artist, mm-hmm. um, it describes unthinkingly obedient Nigerian soldiers. Oh, and wow. that's probably more the Haitian metaphor, although it can be read either, uh-huh. either uh-huh. way. And then the Cranberry Zombie from 1994. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Describe IRA terrorists. Mm. And so zombie as a political insult is sort of going about its business quite apart from like the rise and fall of of zombie cinema. Yeah. I mean, look, the key moment that takes place is in 1996 to get us past the silly, sort of the new silly period. Um, And it's not in cinema, but it's in video games. It's from Capcom. It goes, first of all, under the name Biohazard in Japan, but internationally it's known as Resident Evil. And... It becomes, I mean, astonishingly large. I mean, there's about 20 sequels. I've probably played about half of them. <laughs> like, I've played quite a few Resident Evil games. And it coins the phrase survival horror, which is really just trying to leave the player with quite minimal resources, including bullets and health packs. Rather than action-packed, it's about sort of terror and conservation of, of resources. Um, it was very useful, I think, for video games to have zombies because during this period in the 90s, they were really struggling with censorship. We, we forget it now, but um, the BBFC were basically coming down on films like Carmageddon, which were giving players points for basically running over pedestrians. And so Carmageddon just went, oh, well, what if they're zombies? And BBFC were like, okay, that's fine. You can do whatever you like. And so it was a really easy get out from a growing moral Well, panic. the question has been like, who can you kill? And it's quite interesting the way that, you know, say like in later Tarantino movies, he's like, well, you're allowed to mur- brutally murder Nazis <laughs> or slave owners, <laughs> right? 
and, and you kind of agree on Nazis, which is why there are several Nazi zombie movies. But zombies are, in in in, if you want to treat them in that way, as most uh, video games do, but not actually The Last of Us, but um, as just the sort of they look like people, but they're not really people, and you can kill as many as you like. Yeah. Whereas the movies are often insisting that you can't mm. and that there is a moral cost to that yeah but i don't think resident evil wants you to be thinking about moral cost no. i've played zombie arcade games whatever they are house of zombies whatever the ones that have like an airport arcades mm -hmm. and i'm not just thinking oh i'm being dehumanized <laughs> <laughs> by blowing this zombie's <laughs> head off um this turns into uh 28 days later really which i think heralds the kind of new era culturally of of the zombie. So the screenwriter Alex Garland, even though he had been a fan of the Romero movies when he was like a young teenager, what spurs him to write this screenplay is playing Resident Evil a lot. Yeah, right. And, and we're going to talk about this where they're technically not zombies, although even the phrase technically not zombies is a nonsense phrase because there is no technical definition of zombies. And as we've seen, it just changes all the time in this really malleable kind of way. Well, Danny Boyle insists they're not zombies because they are alive. Mm. They are infected by the rage virus, which mm -hmm. is sort of an ultra potent form of, of human rage, which has been, you know, created in a laboratory for, some, for a foolish reason and has, has leaked out. So he's going, well, they're not zombies because they're not dead. And then Alex Garland is like, I don't care. They, they, I meant them to be zombies. His idea, the way he describes it, he pitched it to producer Andrew McDonald. Look, I've got an idea for a film. It's about running zombies and it's got daylight and it's in London. <laughs> and this is, you know, Danny Boyle's regular collaborator. Uh, and, and he just goes, yeah, go, go, go and do that. And that's basically what it is. Well, and as you alluded to earlier, I mean, at the end, the main character and two women that he's with think they found safety with a group of soldiers who, it turns out, basically want to use the women as sex slaves mm. to restart the race. Um, and so, again, you have that sort of uh, September the 11th shadow of this kind of growing militarization. Are the soldiers to be trusted? Can you actually find safety with soldiers? Are they the way that you might want to fix things? Yeah, but all unintentional. Yeah, but unintentional. The The chief thing that really changes with zombies and the big new kind of metaphor that I think is, is really consolidated through 28 Days Later is this idea of kind of medicalization. Um, that it spreads because of the speed of the zombies and because you can get it so easily. So just to drop a blood, you know, in your eye yeah. means that you can catch it. You don't have to be bitten. You get this real sense of sort of instant transmission. Now, funnily enough, when the film comes out, just as it's being released in the UK, we're getting the first moments of SARS outbreak in China. But what predates that, starting about 1994, is this massive panic about uh, Ebola and related yeah. filoviruses. So there was there was a great deal of concern about viruses or post-AIDS thing about like, well, what is the next virus? And so SARS was like the latest one and it seemed to confirm it in the same way that 9-11 seemed to confirm it. Yeah. It's like a really weird film based on things that had happened that mm. ended up seeming like prescient. He says, I mean, so Danny Boyle, the director, says, we actually had a lower level of paranoia in mind, a very British one, which was the continued scare of a mad cow disease and the sudden foot and mouth outbreak. <laughs> for, for months, the UK was full of fields of burning animals, biblical images of pies on the horizon, smoke filling the sky. But extraordinarily, I mean, the, the main thing is, I don't think anyone that's seen that film, and most people have seen that film during COVID, could, could could get it out of their mind during that yeah. period. It became the sort of almost totemic representation of what was happening to us, especially if you're a Londoner, obviously. Yeah. Because at the time that that film came out, the idea of an empty London seemed inconceivable, whereas during COVID, it became very much a reality. So between 2002 and 2009, I think you've got Zombie Mania. You have the sequel 28 Weeks Later. Uh, you've got Shaun of the Dead, Zombieland, the Resident Evil movies, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead, Will Smith's movie of I Am Legend, The Walking Dead and Marvel Zombies comic books, Max Brooks's The Zombie Survivor Guide and World War Z, Charlie Brooker's Dead Set, and mm. Romero's own Land of the Dead. 
as all well. sort of saying different things. And and the sort of genre breakdown, right? So, you know, Shaun of the Dead is described as a zom-rom-com. Zom-com, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies comes out. Yeah. Internationally, you get this extraordinary spread. So in India, you get Go, Go, A Gone, very good name. In Japan, you get the fantastically titled Stacy Attack of the Schoolgirl Zombies. In South Korea, you get Train to Busan, which is absolutely brilliant. In Argentina, several examples. So it, it suddenly just globalizes. It, it, the zombie horde takes over the world in a, in a very obvious metaphor that I cannot resist from using. It, it, it then almost becomes impossible to dis- discuss everything that it is doing, everything that is going on. And it's almost like, okay, what, what's the innovation? It's really easy to see in each movie, like, what you're taking from Romero and the, the tradition. But then this is an innovation. So in the I Am Legend movie, the cause is, again, an infection, but it's meant to be a miracle cure for cancer, which goes wrong. So rather than being a bioweapon that has mm. leaked, mm-hmm. it's meant to be a good thing. And so that's more of a sort of comment on scientific hubris. And then you can say, say something like Dead Set, the Charlie Brooker one, where it uses the Big Brother house as the sort of fragile fortress, mm. obviously to satirize reality TV and the you know the masses again. They're all doing different things. I'm Shaun of the Dead, and I'm not... Sh- I, I didn't know this, actually. I'd forgotten that the, the slogan was, ever felt you were surrounded by zombies on the poster. Wow, yeah. And it's almost like Sean just thinks that everybody around him is kind of a zombie anyway, the commuters. Yeah, the guy in the shop. Yeah. There's there's a real... That, that relates to a strain that's been there certainly since dawn of uh, The Living Dead, set in the shopping mall, which is this sort of strange relationship. It's It's almost like... Aren't people just drones, really? They'll buy whatever. You know, there's certain bits where the zombies are walking around the shopping mall exactly as they did when they were alive. When the humans manage to get the zombies out of the shopping mall, they just start shopping in there as they were before, basically as the zombies had done. It's basically like, aren't we all idiots, you know? And and connected to that, there is another idea which is that you alluded to earlier, which is sort of zombification through trash culture. You know, aren't we just reading so many comic books and rubbish films that we've all turned into morons? A sort of almost like a kind of pop culture self-hatred expressed through the zombie. Mm. And what I find odd and a bit grim about all that is you have to be in on the joke. You know, in Dawn, Dawn's thing to you is but you're not like that, right? Mm -hmm. Because you see the joke that we're making, which, by the way, is not a very subtle joke, right? And so it's got this this kind of lineage that can take you to wake up sheeples online of I am the smarter one, you guys are all lost in the crowd. Yeah, and that's why it's hard to pin down politically because it can Mm. seem rather sort of misanthropic and sometimes really, really disturbing. There is a blurb that I came across from one of the collected editions of Robert Kirkman's uh, comic book, the Walking Dead. The world we knew is gone. The world of commerce and frivolous necessity has been replaced by a world of survival and responsibility. Now, that is a weird fucking way to describe the zombie apocalypse. Like, fr- I would rather have frivolous necessity than have my face eaten off. And so... is Can, can you have frivolous necessity? I don't really know what that- I'm not sure they thought that copy through very very hard. Anyway, it just seems like um, it seems like there's a lot of sometimes unexplored political currents going there. One of them, yes. which which is that the the birth of the survivalist movement in the in the mid late 1970s in America is related to the growth of the post apocalyptic movie. And a lot mm-hmm. of the time, they didn't know that George Miller, when he was making Mad Max, did not know. That he, you know, what was going on with survivalists. But there's this idea of like, wouldn't it just be better if civilization collapsed and the only people that could survive were like rough, tough men? Yes. Which is is very different to the more humane uh, Day of the Triffids kind of idea that like, well, the good, sensible people have to uh, preserve and rebuild society. There's a real... um. It's curious. You get it from Marxist writers on zombies, 
you know, basically saying, oh, there's obviously something a bit euphoric about it because it's the end of capitalism and the return of having to work with your hands. <laughs> <laughs> you get it in Robert Kirkman. So Robert Kirkman wrote the comic book Walking Dead that then became the TV series. I mean, one of the most successful TV series of all times in 120 countries and 30 languages. He has an interview quite early on where he said the thing that interested me about zombies was the reversal of the class relationship that the working class become ruling class and the ruling class become working class because they, the ruling class don't really have any useful skills that they mm -hmm. can bring to the post-zombie wasteland. And that idea is very heavily in World War Z, which unfortunately we have to say the American way because you're mm -hmm. sort of forced to by the pun, uh, where there's a period in the US where they sort of bring in, they, they have to essentially turn it into a collectivist kind of country. And the narrator at one point says, well, the problem we had was we got all these kind of, you know, advertising executives and mm -hmm. Hollywood agents. And they're like, well, I'm not going to take orders from my cleaning lady, but it's like, or my plumber. But actually the plumber is the one who can actually do something. And in all of those examples, there is this hatred of essentially a services economy <laughs> and a kind of yearning to go back to the, we do stuff with our hands, we work the land, which has, I can have quite a kind of disturbing element to it. Well, I think World War Z is an exception there because it's, you say narrator, but it's, of course, it's an oral history. So that's sure. like one of the many. And so he explores like lots of different ideas. And, and I want to give a nod to that, but he can show lots of different angles on this, on this zombie war. And he's very, studied a lot of military history to the point where he was actually asked to lecture at West Point Military Academy on strategy. Oh my God. Because they thought, oh, you've actually got an incredible understanding of strategy. Oh my God. And, and what, all, what happens in the book is a lot of the time it's about what happens when people can work together. It talks about the failure, the failure but it also ultimately talks about what can happen if you do have organization and you have strategy and you have collaboration. Yes. So it's relatively, relatively optimistic. We should say that some of that strategy involves sacrificing whole oh. parts of your population as bait. But yeah, because yeah. he's aware of the ruthlessness of it. That's yeah, the yeah, Redica yeah. plan at South Africa. And it's very much about like the different mentalities of different countries um, affects how they respond. I'm going to mention America's particularly because uh, this reminds me of our climate denial episodes. The former White House chief of staff talking about why they didn't take it seriously. We got dozens of these reports a week. Every administration did, all of them claiming that their particular boogeyman was the greatest threat to human existence. Come on. Can you imagine what America would have been like if the federal government slammed on the brakes every time some paranoid crackpot cried wolf or global warming or living dead? Please. <laughs> The more those elitist eggheads shouted, the dead are walking, the more most real Americans tuned them out. <laughs> so there's some like, there's some fabulous satire in there. Mm -hmm. But Brooks was really trying to get to something. He was saying it's about how humanity as a whole deals with a catastrophe. And he's more optimistic than Romero for, for sure. Definitely. And it's interesting that he's talking when the movie comes out, I think, promoting the movie. Which is, a few, uh, which is 2013, maybe? He says, since 2001, people have been scared. And he mentions 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, Katrina, anthrax letters, DC sniper, global warming, global financial meltdown, bird flu, swine flu, SARS. Mm. And he's talking about all of these things that you can, these fears that you can sort of channel into the zombie. He says, you can't shoot the financial meltdown in the head. You can do that with a zombie. Mm. So it sort of, it reflects the fears and, and is genuinely quite terrifying, but it also gives you like a target, something quite cathartic that you can fight. You can't fight climate change with an axe, but you can fight a zombie with an axe. It becomes this kind of like paradigm allegorical mode for disaster. Yeah. Of any, of kind of any sort. It's just, just sort of personifies and turns it, it allows you to, to, to deal with fears about disaster in a way that involves you shooting shit in the head with a shotgun, which is quite a nice combination of things if you're involved in the entertainment industry. And that's what Romero said. He says it's about, there could be a hurricane, mm -hmm. you know, it could be a flood. And often it is like it's a human flood. Uh, the other two ones I didn't really want to briefly mention as, as, as really important political allegories are 28 Weeks Later yeah. and Zone One, novel by Colson Whitehead. It's probably like the best written zombie novel, just like the prose is uh -huh. fucking amazing. And 28 Weeks Later, American-led international force uh, occupies the Isle of Dogs. They think Britain is clear of zombies. They're going to rebuild the country. 
uh, a zombie sneaks through, starts infecting everybody, turns into a massacre. It's the end of the world, right? Yeah. Uh, zone <laughs> spoilers. Um, and zone one is about this group, a part of a project called American Phoenix. Again, after a um, after a zombie pandemic, and they're basically going through Manhattan, clearing out the last zombie stragglers, so they can rebuild. Again, this does not go very well. And in both cases, it feels like it's the occupation of Iraq. It's not that the zombies explicitly 100%. represent, you know, terrorists or Iraqis or whatever, but these are about failed military occupations slash reconstructions. And it's about that sort of hubris. Oh, I say hubris, but of course, everybody wants to believe after a disaster that you can rebuild. Everybody does that, mm. right? It doesn't matter what the natural disaster is. You're like, we can or unnatural, we can we can build back better. And these stories, perhaps inspired by Iraq, is just like, nah, you know, it will it will fail. You're in over your head. I think 28 weeks later, I watched it a couple of nights ago in preparation for this, rewatched it. I mean, A, it's an absolutely spectacular horror film. Uh, but B, it's almost the perfect distillation of many of the manners in Romero, you know, in an opening scene, you see a husband who has an opportunity to save his wife. Probably he would lose his own life in the process and then just leaves his wife. Over and over again, people fail. So it has this progressive sheen, the sort of anti, the, you know, the Iraq, as you're saying, the Iraq wars are all over it and the criticism of the American military. Um, and yet when you dig down into what it's saying, I mean, the plot of that film Every single act of kindness and self-sacrifice, yeah. of which there are many, succeeds only in spreading the zombie outbreak to the European mainland. So it's just shown, like, if you are kind, you will make the situation worse. If you were to actually do what is needed to be done, the truth is, you do what the American soldiers were doing and you just start killing everything. And that would have actually led to a better outcome by the end of the day. That's film. the thing, because they're killing people that might not be zombies because they can't tell the difference between them. So they've just got instructions to kill everyone. And just like with the doctor in uh, Dawn of the Dead, it's like, that is right. <laughs> it is an atrocity, but it is the right thing to do. Or like the Redica plan in World War Z. That's why this stuff is so incredibly disturbing. Because I don't think most of the people, you know, making these movies or writing these stories, you know, <laughs> the sort of mentality of war criminals. But there's something in the challenge of the the zombie wave, mm -hmm. where there is no morally clean way yeah. to deal with it. The only the only time that you sort of, it's not so bad, is in comedies, but even in like Shaun of the Dead. I mean, it's pretty upsetting stuff. He has to kill his like, mum's boyfriend. And, yeah. Like there's no, there's no truly non-upsetting zombie story. There's, um, I think, something quite disturbing about it as a genre. And I say this as someone who obviously loves it, you know, mm -hmm. Um, that you repeatedly see the progressive sheen. But if you watch a lot of it, read a lot of it, what it kind of, I think, suggests to people is, you know, when they're in the supermarket buying their bread or whatever, they're going to look at the guy next to them and think, you and I would kill each other with our teeth for this loaf of bread in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. I should resolve myself to be the person, you know, who can make those choices, you know, who can cut off their sister's head or whatever it is. It's always a family member that you end up having to do this stuff to in a zombie film. Uh, who should have a basement with lots of weapons and canned goods, you know, who's, you know, who, who is who is defined by my ability to be ruthless when I need to be. It is in the end. It's not, Romero might think it's a description of human beings, but it's also kind of normative, right? It's suggestive to you of what you should be prepared to do when shit goes down in some future disaster for whatever reason. It has an influence on people, I think. Mm. And that is ultimately, despite all of its presentation as being progressive, quite a disturbing and regressive one. Well, one of the first uh, newspaper articles that was ever written about survivalism in the mid-70s, when this was like a, a new word, mm -hmm. has someone going, when the, he was expecting like economic collapse. Um, and he says, and when that day comes, you're going to have to uh, kill your neighbor. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to do that. You know, if you've got a shelter, you have to shut them out. Mm -hmm. If they've got food and you need the food, you're going to have to kill them. And... Even in something like Shaun of the Dead, 
you know, and Edgar Wright is just uh, Simon Pegg. I mean, there's lovely sort of liberal dudes. <laughs> but there's still something about like, here is this, uh, here is this kind of aimless slacker who is redeemed by violent catastrophe. Mm. It's almost like, well, you can't get away from that. And so you can have these, when you're trying to say, well, what are the politics of zombie movies? I mean, you, you, you can't say, not only because different movies are doing different things, but even in the same movie, you could get your, you know, you get a Marxist and a conservative and a, and a mm -hmm. liberal, and they would read the message, if you will, in different ways, because there is something so bleak and brutal encoded in the genre. There's just no way of being nice about it. There's yeah, yeah. Which, which again, I just think is incredibly extraordinary when you think back to the origin of this stuff as a representation essentially of slavery come back in supernatural form and has gone from there, from Haiti, we think, to spread across the whole world each time, losing some of the original meaning, mm. digging itself into a local one, almost in the same way that a zombie horde cannot be contained and will will overrule the last redoubt in the same way that you can't find a set meaning, a set definition, you cannot contain it. It will just keep on knocking it over. It is a kind of globalized metatrope into which you can deposit any number of individual or mass anxieties. And for that, it is a genuinely, absolutely fascinating cultural category. Well, there's a piece in Slate in 2011 from Tori Bosch where she wrote, the zombie boom was a response to um, the war on terror, the, you know, 9-11, the wars that followed, then the financial crisis. And she makes the prediction, should the economy recover, I suspect that we will abandon zombies as entertainment. The zombie boom will be a reminder of the frightening uncertainties of this decade, by which I think she probably means this past decade. That didn't happen at all, did it? No, but then to be fair, the economy didn't really recover. <laughs> so we're still waiting. But once it does, with enough <laughs> Keynesian <laughs> stimulus, we will tire of zombies. No, but just that, that, that list that Max Brooks gave, it's like, well, there's always something. So you could have really confidently said during that zombie boom that starts with 28 days later. Mm. A few years into that, you could have confidently said, this is a response to 9-11 and Iraq, right? Yeah. And then time moves on and you're going, well, I'll, this might be a response to the feelings of you know, Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. And they go, oh, no, well, this is probably to do with the financial crisis. No, this is probably more to do with uh, SARS or swine flu or, you know, more recently, COVID. And at any time, you wouldn't have been entirely wrong, but you wouldn't have been entirely right. Like to, to to say that the success of the zombie depends on everybody being concerned about a certain thing in the way that, you know, films about nuclear war subside when the audience is less worried about nuclear war. And that's that's the same with any kind of like, you know, disaster movie, apocalyptic movie. Whereas there's the zombie. It's like, well, people are always going to be scared of something. Yes. And as long as people are scared of anything at all, it seems that the zombie can embody that. Patron people, you lovely, gorgeous bastards, I'm going to eat your brains. Then thanks very much this week to Lucy, Margaret Kitten, Chris Webster, Michael Goodrum, and Robert Young. Thank you for supporting us, guys. We literally could not do any of this stuff without you. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Origin Story. We'll be back next week when we'll be looking at the subject of eugenics. You can see all of our sources in the show notes. You can give us feedback via the Patreon page or at Origin Storycast on Twitter. And if you're not a Patreon backer, you would like to hear part one of eugenics right now. For an abrupt change of pace, I would say, but still <laughs> still pretty dark and in some ways a horror story. Uh, you can join up at patreon.com slash originstorypod for not just advanced episodes, but bonus episodes between seasons, merchandise, and all kinds of fun. We will now shuffle off lifelessly into next week. Brains. <laughs> Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey, and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. 
Origin Story is a Podmasters production.